Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn with Focus Compounding on air live with Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. This is the first time you're tuning in with us. Thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to check out all of our content that we push out into the investing universe. Uh, go to focuscompound.com uh, to get access to investment write-ups from Jeff going all the way back to 2005. And of course, follow me on X, formerly known as Twitter, and my username, at Focus Compound. All the information is in the description below. So in today's podcast, we are going to talk about the box office and predictions for 2024. And what prompted this podcast, Jeff, is at our year-end podcast, we talked a little bit about the box office. And you had made the comment that although the box office is set to not be good in 2024, uh, that didn't necessarily mean that it would not be good for um, stocks in you know uh, the entertainment or movie theater industry in general. So really want to talk about that distinction first, then we could actually talk about it, right? So this idea of like expectations, something that mm -hmm. was interesting is at that same year-end podcast, when we reviewed our predictions for 2023, you had said, look, expectations are so low right now that it could produce good results for stocks because expectations were so low. And now we've really swung to the other side for this year where expectations seem to be so high and you wouldn't be surprised if, um, you know, stocks react uh, differently to that because everything is, uh, there's a lot of optimism baked into the price. So wanted to talk about that as it relates to the box office, how you typically think about that. Obviously these are short term things. Um, uh, but just curious to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, so these are heavily followed by analysts, um, and the, the stocks have lots of volume and stuff. Um, so it's an industry that's covered a lot that way. So I wanted to point it out last year because it's something analysts would know and they would look ahead. And a lot of times, right, their price targets are six to 12 months or something like that. And so they're already looking ahead to that and thinking about that. Um, so at the end of, you know, middle or end of last year or whatever is when they're thinking, oh, look how bad 2024 looks. Um, and they probably care more about that than um, individual investors would where they're thinking more like, uh, is it recovering steadily from COVID or something? Because a lot of times when people email me and everything, they're relying entirely on backwards looking things and especially backwards looking financials only, not other information we might have. Um, so I think that you've seen that some of the stocks haven't done that great lately. So that already kind of prices that in. Um, and the reason for this is they can't, uh, you know, for most kinds of movies and things, these decisions were made a couple of years ago. They can't pivot and suddenly uh, have more supply. They've done some. Uh, uh, Disney's re-releasing a bunch of sort of re-releasing. They're releasing stuff that was never put in theaters during the pandemic. Um, it just aired directly on like Disney Plus or whatever. And so they're going to play it in theaters. They they did like three of those. They, they'll do that this winter. So that's an addition. Um like we talked about last year, you had those concert movies. Those were additions. Um, Sound of Freedom, that's not a major studio movie. Um, you know, things like that. And so there'll be open slots that some of those things could be put in. And I think that's a big factor in what the size of the market will be. Turn out to be is how much non-major studio stuff, non-traditional things are put in theaters. Um, because there's no way that the 
studios can just put more stuff in. Mm -hmm. Isn't it kind of weird how the movie theater industry, traditionally when most things, there's less supply, prices go up, right? Mm -hmm. That's not necessarily the case for the movie theater industry. It sort of defies the laws of economics that way. Yeah. So this is, you know, and, and it's not as uncommon as people think that there's, it's just not something people think about that you can't just think in terms of like widgets or something. Each different product, each different industry works differently in terms of how like prices drive behavior. Um, and so what we're talking about is that movie tickets don't change in price depending on the popularity of the, the movie. So high demand for a movie simply causes them to uh, end up having more attendance, right? And the greater attendance drives the higher prices. But this is important because if there's a lack of supply... Um, and there's high fixed costs, which there are, um, it could have a really bad result for earnings, even though that wouldn't happen in other industries because they can't adjust their prices, right? So the lack of supply doesn't allow them to adjust prices. Without adjusting prices, you get purely the quantity change. And that's important because like when we talked about lime or something, um, that fell off a cliff in terms of quantity um, sold after the financial crisis. But pricing held up a lot better than it does in some industries. And we've talked about that reversed thing with like uh, when we talked about um, clothing things. Like I think we talked about how Buckle sold less stuff but didn't reduce their prices. And there are other companies that reduced prices a lot. Their margins got hit a lot even though they did similar volumes. Um, and it's different ways of responding to it because that's how you clear out inventory, right? Is you have to cut prices to clear out inventory. So and so it's, it's not like unique. But it is something that when I say, you know, this is a supply, a lack of supply is what's causing this. That's confusing to some people. You're right. So they think, what does that mean? Um, there's plenty, there'll be plenty of demand, but there won't be enough supply. Mm-hmm. So from like a studio's perspective, I mean, they had the writer strike, uh, actor strike, all that is pretty much in the rear mirror. What now? Is it just get back to the drawing table, get back and then starting that? schedule i mean from start to finish what is the production timeline on how long like take us through like the beginning stages of creating a movie maybe people are interested in that it depends um so if you look some movies will have a ridiculous number of things claiming that they're in development um i you know so you'll hear something like there's you know 13 game of thrones spinoff series in development or something that just means someone has an idea someone asked to pitch something someone it was put up on a board somewhere it doesn't even mean they spent any money on any of those what we're really talking about here is pretty much um that it goes into production or at least it goes into it really goes into pre-production um so this is when they actually start having technical aspects of things being done um, before that, you could spend millions of dollars developing an idea, but you can easily not make it. Um, after that, it's going to get made, um, usually. So depends on the kind of movie and everything, and depends on different eras of, of movie making. But I would say it's not unreasonable to think that a decision that what you're seeing in the movie theaters for popular movies are based on things that the decision to finance the movie and stuff was made somewhere from one to four years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, with like a sequel to a horror movie or something, maybe one year, um, you know, and a original animated movie from a major studio or something, that that's like four years um, easily. 
Yeah, that's interesting. So I guess how does the supply problem get fixed in the, you know, movie theater industry with the box office? You just need more product. You need more movies. Do you think we'll actually get some surprises where studios have some movies in the queue that they're like, well, actually, this is a pretty good time to release a movie because there isn't a lot of competition. What are you thinking? I don't think they have any of those left. Really? <laughs> um, I think that some, uh, they didn't tell people, but I do think that some things were sitting on a shelf and they said it was COVID related and whatever, and they, they didn't have anything else to do and they put it out. Um, but I think that they've used those all up. I mean, if something's sitting on a shelf for that long, I mean, otherwise it's just very bad. Like that, there aren't secret movies out there that aren't released for, you know, people have theories about why something isn't released. Uh, it's probably not released for quality reasons. You know, I, I haven't seen Batgirl or whatever, but um, probably wasn't good. If it was good, they would have released it. You know what I mean? They, there are other concerns too, but no one takes a tax write off and, you know, just like says, let's not do this at all after you put all that money into it. Because I mean, you could even release something with barely any marketing behind it. Um, so, and and there would have been things to put out that way. So uh, uh, there would have been room for it. You know, theaters would have been happy to, to have it. So I think that um, that's usually the reason. And they don't, uh, with the exception of deciding if they're going to do it streaming or not. I do agree with that. And that was a big thing before. There were movies that went to streaming that would otherwise have been theatrical releases. Um, and I think we'll see less of that. Again, sometimes I think that's a quality issue, to be entirely honest. At movies that if you read about that are sold to Amazon or Netflix or something, um, the media reports are like, you know, their economics are different and this deal makes sense for them, but the studio doesn't make as much sense for the studio. I don't think that they would sell a movie at, you know, after it's basically done unless they it didn't turn out the way that they wanted it. So that doesn't mean it's awful or something, but it, you know, it, it probably wasn't everything they hoped it to be. Sure. Um, yeah. Because I, otherwise they're not offering them these things. It's not like those, those um, services would get a chance to look at every movie that people are making. Um, and that was mostly something that was done during the pan, during the pandemic where, you know, they probably some of the studios didn't mind getting cash in the door and stuff when there was no way to put it out in theaters at all. Um, so there could be foreign things. Um, there could be some other stuff like that. I mean, there's obviously hope lately. I think there would be, you know, um, Japanese movies have done really well. Um, Christian movies have done really well. And then we talked about, you know, concert things. Um, they're more likely to try some of that stuff than they have in the past, I think. Um, there's other things that have done better than they used to, too, but there's no way to supply more of it quickly. Uh, video game movies have done better than they did before. They had a very bad record in the past, um, and lately they've done quite well. Uh, but you would already have been working on them, you know? And there will be some, like there'll be a Sonic sequel and stuff, but, um, you know, that that's not some. this is stuff you would have had to plan for a couple of years ago. Do you think it's, um, you know, a little annoying? Like I was thinking last week, I don't know who I was watching. I was watching an NFL game. I don't know if it was the Lions or the Bills or what, but I don't really watch the NFL during the regular season, but I do like to watch okay. playoff football because I like the, the stakes and it's just fun, right? 
um, stakes, meaning if you lose, you're done. And I found it annoying. I was watching one game on YouTube TV, and then it was like, oh, you got to go over to Peacock to watch this next mm-hmm. game. And I have Peacock, so it's $5. Not a big deal, because I like to watch The Office. But I don't know, it is It's becoming really annoying where it's like oh this night you have to have amazon prime which i do so it's whatever and Mm -hmm. then this night you have to watch it on peacock and if it's not then you know it'll be on youtube tv or whatever and you know all these different logins and passwords and all this stuff it's it's just it's really annoying like it's gone from being super simple right like you picture like with direct tv and obviously i think if you still have direct tv they still have it but not when it's, yeah. I don't know if it's Thursday night football is Amazon Prime and then other times right. around Peacock, whatever. Um, you know, but it's gone from being super simple to now like being complicated. I'm always constantly having to like log in on the account. And, you know, if you have different passwords because maybe a different login has a different like, they want you to use, a, a, you know, more characters or a special character or what. And then, you know, it's nice when they have the QR code where you just quickly do it on your phone. But I'm just like, goodness, like I have so many different logins now. Like it's just the user experience, in my opinion, has just drastically gone down. And we've gone from yeah. like this bundled approach to, oh, no, we could stream it. Streaming is easier. But now there's so many different streaming services. And now certain nights are on Peacock versus Amazon Prime versus this versus that. I'm just like, it's just really made it annoying, you know? Yeah. And that was the appeal of the bundle. Um uh, you know, people had an idea of it that would be a lot better, right? Um, and I don't know. Eventually, you're you're probably going to have to pay prices that are similar to what a bundle is, and they're going to have to reassemble much of a bundle. There's a reason why they did it that way. Um, th- there's a few reasons. Some of the reasons were were government policy and stuff kind of things to protect channels that otherwise wouldn't manage to exist. Um, but other, th- but there are other reasons that weren't i mean certainly strong um content owners did make you take channels you didn't want because they had a channel you did want and so they could help launch a channel or something so yes if you owned espn you could try out a channel that otherwise you wouldn't be able to because you could force people to take it basically um so i i wouldn't be surprised if you see a lot more bundling and consolidation and if you see um a lot more ads i actually think that the future is probably in free uh ad supported um stuff i think that will grow much faster i think it, we're probably pretty saturated um in the united states i think it's over in terms of growth of pay uh tv unbundled you know a netflix type service or a um you know anything that like you're saying peacock and stuff anything that's a single sort of service um that you're buying directly from uh that you're that you're subscribing to directly and that isn't heavily ad based you know um that's my guess but and that that's something that you know wall street really loved that model so they put a lot into it and put a lot of things on that um so it's interesting i I, you know it's one of those things it's like the internet bubble It, it had a lot of great outcomes for people but you know um, this is great for consumers, but I don't know if all these services would exist and stuff if Wall Street hadn't been so excited about um, subscribers. Yeah, and putting high multiples on it, mm-hmm. investment banking, sure, yeah. Yeah, but once it exists, it, they'll probably keep 
you know, it's a lot more likely they'll keep being operated even if it doesn't make them money. So it's good for consumers that way when people overinvest and stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So box office in 2024 is expected to be eight billion or thereabouts, which is down 11 percent from 2023. 2023 was up 21 percent over 2022. Had some, I don't know if you want to call it like one-time hits in there. Probably curious to hear your thoughts though. So eight billion. Uh, box office is projected to be down. However, you still think, you know, certain stocks tied to the box office of one way or the other uh, are pretty cheap, right? I mean, you look at, I mean, I, something, a stock that I think is actually, here it is right here, really cheap. I think Marcus Corporation Marcus, yeah. is pretty cheap at these levels. And I don't know, it could be one of those things where no one puts a multiple on it till, you know, 2024, 2025, when analysts start to say, oh, okay, we've gone through this. And now, you know, next year, things should hopefully start to turn around a little bit and then into the future. But I've been kind of shocked by how cheap uh, Marcus Corporation is. Is there anything else that stands out to you? I mean, Marcus has exposure to commercial real estate as well. So their business isn't just uh, movie theaters, but yeah, there's a lot of downside protection in place. And then you get Obviously, when things start to turn around, it's like a pretty cheap, I would say. Yeah, and Marcus has excess assets. It um, owns uh, hotels and operates hotels, so it has that part of the business that won't be have the same cyclicality to it or the same down year to it. Um, it doesn't have the same credit risks as some of the other ones. Um, you know, uh, AMC is the worst exposed in that it has bad credit and it's completely reliant on things that would be affected by uh, big drops in attendance. Cinemark would also be really affected by that, but they're not as weak as um, as AMC in terms of their financial situations. Um, so, I mean, the estimate that you have there is that it would be down, what, 11% or something? My guess would be that it could, you know, I think I said this before, I, I would probably say 20% in terms of... Um, how much you would expect the currently announced reductions in supply to cause if pricing was the same and if nothing was added later. The offsets to that are you assume, you always would assume that there'll be some things added later and now you're expecting them to be stronger than normal. Like there's just more likely that people, there'll be openings, you know what I mean? So someone will say, I'll just release something. Um, And then you just also expect price increases. I I think probably ticket prices didn't increase as much coming right out of COVID as they had historically, and they might be likely to do that. It would make sense to do that now. So that's factored in, and maybe that would affect 5% of it or something. Um, So that you can get to like 11% or something. But there are companies for which an 11% decline in revenue, I mean, could cause more like a 20, 25% decline in their earnings or something. Sure. Yeah. What are some big movies? Uh, I mean, Deadpool, right? That that could usually be a pretty popular movie that's coming out this year. Anything else yeah, that stands so, out to you? So that's part of my adjustment to it that might not be other people's. Um, I am adjusting down superhero results compared to what they comped for before, significantly. There's been a major erosion in uh, sort of what we see from that in the last year or so. Um, so I think... And then that also is a factor because companies moved superhero things out for the year. But the offset on that is um, with something like Deadpool, like you said. Um, the, that's the cure for a genre is to take away all the other stuff. 
And if you winnow down the number of movies in it or books or whatever in something, um, then that thing, it makes that thing unique and it, it will be a lot more successful. So on a particular movie, you know, if there's fewer superhero movies out in a year, then you see, it seems fresher and stuff. And obviously that's a totally different kind of movie than some of the others in terms of the, the tone and everything. Right. And, um, so it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't feel to people like it's the same thing as some other ones, which might be too similar. Right. Like, um, if blue beetles coming out and you know, Aquaman's coming out or whatever came out just before it, then to a lot of people that those might seem very similar and there's not something unique about it. So why, um, why bother if you're already not that big into it? Um, yeah. So particular movies, it's good if, if that happens, the fewer they release of something, you know, then you have a lot of, um, success. I think that's something that people overlook when you go back to historical records and you're like, how did this movie make so much money? Then you have to think of what it was at the time and what was before it. Cause mo movies that seem like they're, Oh, there are a million of these. You go back and look and you go, Oh, actually this was one of the first big ones in that of that kind at the time. Right. It was new at the t time and then became cliche. Um, you know, superhero movies 20 years ago were probably three, four or 5% of box office. And then they became 20, 25% at the peak. I was so, going to say, it seems very yeah. uh, like every movie is a superhero movie of some kind. It, it's not going to pretty soon. Um, there, there are movies that are theoretically exist. They have dates and names and people attached to them that will never come out. I, I would be, I would think. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, and that's the cure, just like in other industries, like we talk about insurance or something that you reduce the supply of superhero movies, then you'll get better results once you do that. Um, and eventually it'll seem fresh and new and different. And they'll also try things that are less conventional because the conventional things aren't working as much. Um, so you're willing to take a risk when, when that's the situation. Um, yeah. But I mean that, I think that's the, one of the biggest changes is, uh, is um, you'll see, but it will be a couple of years before you fully reflect the shift. But you're going to see a reduction in superhero and sequel type stuff that's very expensive and probably a willingness to take more risk on expensive original or sort of original kind of stuff. So, you know, um, Super Mario Brothers and Barbie are existing IPs that are well known and everything. Super Mario Brothers actually was a movie, you know, 30 years ago or something. But those are different than doing a sequel to something else or doing... Um, uh, like a superhero movie or something, right? So, uh, and they were, they did well, right? So you'll see more of that kind of thing. It used to be that, I think that's one reason video game movies might do better in the future. Long ago, um, it would be unusual to give budget, budgets as big as the budgets they gave to some of those things. And that includes Barbie. Um, you just wouldn't risk as much some of those things. You, you would just have it at much lower. So they often would, would end up with a budget that really was too low for what they wanted to do and would look cheap. Right. Um, so you would have some idea that will make this video game movie or whatever, which to look like people want it to look is expensive, but then you, you kind of run the numbers and go, well, video game movies don't do that amazingly. So I got to trim it down. You know, that's, that's the problem with fantasy generally, right? Lord of the Rings was huge. Harry Potter was huge. Why hadn't they been huge before then? Because, there isn't such a big audience and it's a very expensive thing to do. So what you end up making a lot of is really cheap 
lucky movies because you always end up budgeting less than you really should to do it. So you shouldn't, if you can't do it well, then why are you doing it at all? But you know, um, that's what tends to happen. I got a funny story. Was it the last, uh, Lord of the Rings? that was like three hours long or was that all of them? The last one was super long, right? It got very long. Yeah. Yeah. So I remember I was very young, but went to Lord of the Rings with my uncle and my brother and we got to the movie theater like right as it was starting and the theater was packed other than literally like the first row. So mm-hmm. that was, you know, we sat in the first row and it was whatever, how long the movie was, three and a half hours and just, just looking up just like that <laughs> because it was, you know, it's the only seat left. So funny. Whenever I think of Lord of the Rings, I think of that story. So had to share it with the audience. Yeah, and that's a good example of what happens because Fellowship of the Ring was a fairly normal length movie, and uh-huh. they did like longer extended cuts for it. Is it like but, Return of the King or something like right, that? Right, Return of the King's one? the yeah. third one, yeah. you know, and and so he, uh, Peter Jackson, actually filmed those together, those three. That's but that the wild mean... part to me. You can you tell that every time we talk about that, I'm like, whoa, that is that's some that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they 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 filmed them all together. So, so first, meaning so oh, when they were first consecutively, they didn't wait years to do it. It was boom, we're, we're recording one, right. two, and three. Yeah, it's crazy. Yes, and, and the way movies are done, obviously, is they're not shot in order. Uh, so the scenes are all out of order when you shoot them for production purposes. And when you do several movies at once, that means you'd be shooting all sorts of different things that have, you could be shooting some of the last stuff first, some of the middle stuff at the end. You know, it could be anything. So um, I, that was the longest, I think that's the longest actual shooting that there's ever been on movies it might have been like a year and a half or 13 months or something. It was very long. Um, instead of like maybe two months or something would be, you know, for most, a lot of movies you're seeing, there's tons of stuff before and after, but the actual shooting isn't usually very long. So, um, but it, it was a huge success, right? And so he hadn't cut all the other movies totally. You know, there were still special effects you could do later, whatever I'm saying, he shot it all together, but that doesn't mean that you couldn't adjust things later. So, how is it that the third one ended up so much longer than the first one? It's not necessarily that he shot a lot more material. It's that he put more and more into it and he could do that. And the studio would let him do it because they were making so much money. And that's what kind of what I'm saying about superhero movies and everything. The standards end up dropping because eventually you start saying, Oh, well, um, you know, this is pretty close to what we did before. And that made a lot of money. We don't think it's as good but it's a lot like what we've done before and it'll probably do pretty well. And it's not until you sort of have bombs and things that you stop doing that. And the Peter Jackson one, of course, when they did the Hobbit, which is one book and shorter than the Lord of the Rings books, each of them, uh, he made that into three movies. So that really is expanding it out. So, um, and it wasn't until like the very last of those were not as successful, you know, so I, they would not do that again. You know, a studio wouldn't like do something like the Hobbit break into three. Um, but that's the kind of cyclical thing that we talk about, which is different. It's not an economic cycle at all. And so that's why it's like insurance or something. Uh, industries can have cycles, even if they're not economically sensitive. Movies are not in any way economically sensitive. Uh, you could have huge attendance numbers in the middle of a depression and you could have poor attendance in a, uh, huge boom or something. It, it just, it's not, but it's the issues of supply and demand, like we're talking about matter. And then the issues of the um, confidence in taking an idea too far and, you know, the things that make sense, you know, for people, the first people who do it on the first project, then it's silly by the time that they're doing it, you know, that you're 20 in or something, then everyone's doing it and copying it. And then you kind of kill the golden goose that way and you have to go find another one. Um, And 
you know, that's what we're seeing now. So you'll see some rotation of what things happen. But because of that, I think there's kind of a gap for this year with uh, what there is. And that that is caused by some caution, I think, with COVID and then um, big time with streaming and wrong genre. So they didn't know that superhero stuff would be potentially as weak as it is. So what about uh, AMC, right? What happens to their financial situation? I mean, it's kind of, I mean, they're already in a bunch of debt. Interest payments are high. It's not good for them to have a bad box office year, right? Yeah, AMC depends on um, raising money from equity holders. So if we knew what the stock price of AMC will be, then we could answer that question. If it can go crazy and like it did before, then yeah, you could raise a lot of money because there was an appetite for the stock that was far beyond the, the size of the business. AMC historically did not really make more money than Cinemark um, on an operating basis and stuff. And yet, you know, what was their peak market cap and stuff? I mean, I, I don't, they've issued shares and stuff, so it's so hard to figure out. But you can see their peak stock price and you know that they had... Oh, you got the market gap right there, actually. Right? Yeah. Quick how fast you can see it. Okay. Yeah, it looks like uh, peak was about two... Oh, I'm sorry. 13.9 billion. But you want to go before the, the craze? I mean, before the craze, 2.5 or no, 3.7 over the last 10 years. But they've, they've always yeah. had a lot of debt. So enterprise value is obviously different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but I just mean that... Um, you could check Cinemarks, but I don't believe that theirs has ever been remotely close to that. Um, well, actually, that might not be as true as I think, because um, before their stock used to be three times the price it is now. Yeah. So it looks it like four point five bill. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they have to raise money. So I don't know. So maybe if interest rates get cut, if there's mania, if if there's appetite for risky debt, I don't know. They've issued all sorts of securities and stuff. You know, it was like in that early part when we were talking about Tesla. This is six years ago or something, but we're like, you know, um, it is odd, but you you have to kind of promise the moon and stuff because you need the the capital and everything at the, at that stage. Now they don't. So now he, you can just rely on being a business and doesn't also have to hype it up and everything, but. Um, there actually is a relationship between the hype and stuff of the stock of something like AMC and their financial future, because I don't see how else they could possibly have enough capital. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, look at their, I mean, everything you can look at their shareholders equity. You can look at their total assets. I mean, just gone up a huge amount in Tesla. Uh, I had, I did send to you too. I think that, um, what was the AMC? They're doing some sort of swap as well for like their notes to, to equity, just continuing to dilute. Um, it is very complicated if you look at all the different securities things that they've done. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the there's sometimes been some unusual stuff in terms of who the shareholder base is and how they vote and everything too. So a lot of times, I mean, there's people who short things or try to do arbitrage in it and there's stuff that might make sense, but you should be careful about with AMC because if corporate events that you don't expect happen... You could be, you know, it could be a problem. Now, if it's if it's one percent of your portfolio that's longs this thing and one percent that short that, it's not gonna be a problem. But if you actually needed to, um, if you're actually near uh, the the point where you would it would actually matter what the marks were and everything um, to you, then it which it often is for the professionals that do this stuff. Um, then yeah, the some things that might sound like perfect arbitrage stuff wouldn't work out in theory. 
Um, we talked about that with like, uh, you know, um, cryptocurrency stuff. The things that are designed as a, uh, that arbitrage will keep the prices in, in the right place um, can work in the long run, but they, you know, markets can get dislocated with different stuff. And so eventually what can happen is they can spiral out and you shouldn't kind of sell those things to people on the idea that the market will always arbitrage it correctly. A short-term hiccup could turn into something where it no longer um, is maintained that way, even though there's a, theoretically, there's a reason why everyone should do it. Um, yeah. Now, however, I have to say, MC's a lot smaller now, so it's less of a problem. Um, realistically, in terms of stuff like that, it is less of a problem. When it was much bigger, actually, I think it is much harder to um, uh, for the market to be efficient between the different securities and stuff when it's very large. Um, when it's smaller, I actually think it can be more efficient because it requires fewer people to be trading it, to be willing to take it up to that point and stuff to, to see, to take the pain of, you know, temporary things happening with shorting stuff. Mm -hmm. What uh, are some uh, stocks tied to the box office that you think are interesting? We haven't looked at IMAX before, but are there any more off the beaten path mm -hmm. ideas or anything like that? Yeah, so the ones that it will depend on it a lot are the movie theaters. So studios, most of them, really it does not matter that much. And the way the accounting works, to be honest, because I've thought about this a little bit, I'm like, what would happen if they were making movies and then they like stopped production and there was a gap? Like if they really just shut it off, right? Because COVID, you sort of saw some of that reflected. And I think it might even look to people like results improved. Like free cash flow goes up or something. Yeah, so, so free yeah. cash flow stuff goes up. And then the way the accounting works is you match off... That you're supposed to try to match off based on modeling it, um, your expenses with with um, with expected revenue on it. So something that has a lot of legs and stuff and has a long future and after markets and stuff, you expense slowly. Whereas if you have a bomb, it gets pretty much it's like it being written off. They might not literally say we have to write it off, but what happens is you take all the expenses like upfront because you know it only you're not getting money after a few weeks. Um, so I think that that's where you would see it people will talk about it with studios and things, but it doesn't really matter. Like the fact that there aren't going to be a lot of Marvel movies making a lot of money for Disney. It's, it's doesn't move the needle by a huge amount of Disney that year. Um, although it's more on issues of like, I was thinking, I think I know this sounds like an exaggeration, but I think that Disney may have spent like $700 million on um, Marvel stuff a lot of it was streaming but then they also had a movie the marvels um that almost no one saw you know these numbers aren't easy to come by and there could be offsets to them in some ways but you know they spent a lot on so like the marvels was a smaller is basically a movie that not a lot of people saw and so you would never budget it at a large amount and then i we have some outside sources on what a few of the streaming things were and so they had a few that were as expensive as a major movie, um, which is huge compared to a normal se season of TV, and yet no one saw. I mean, like, it would get canceled instantly on a network. Um, so it was a huge amount of losses. Um, and that was things that were led leading up to the Marvels and stuff in the last few months. Um, so... Those things they'll obviously put out, 
they just won't promote them and stuff that it'll just appear on, on Disney plus. But, uh, I, I think that will drop off a cliff, um, production of, um, expensive streaming series and stuff. So I think we've already passed the peak of that, those things. Um, so, and that does, maybe that'll help make it so that movies aren't quite as expensive because it was starting to be an issue. I think that there was so much production of streaming things. Um, so I think the easiest way for their results to look better is for them to stop making a lot of stuff. Um, and some of them are doing that. And so their results could definitely improve and raising prices and adding ads. So if they add ads, raise prices and, um, eliminate production stuff, you'll see a big boost. And that holds for Paramount and Disney and Warner Brothers. Um, that's your best hope as like a shareholder in those things. And it could go up a lot if they take all those actions similarly at the same time. Mm -hmm. Do you like Cinemark at these levels? Uh, longer term, I do. Um, I think people should know. Uh, so even say 10% drop in box offices, that's what we get is quite a drop. You have the numbers, right? So we can do that at least so people can see this. If you go back, there's a thing on there that has box office um, annually. So if you go to the top under box office, there's like, yeah, theatrical market or something like that. Is that it? Or annual? Okay. So if you scroll down there, you'll see. And we can look at years pre-COVID, uh, basically. So this doesn't go as far back. They probably have dated of the 70s or something. But what you'll notice is that a decline of 10% in either tickets sold or box office or something would be huge. In a lot of industries, it's not, right? So like, okay, we sell 10% less desktop computers one year to another. Happens all the time. 10% less uh, cars and housing things. That's not even a big part of the cycle. But it almost never happens in box office um, normally. So you can see that you are often at like, what, 1.2 billion um, in terms of tickets sold. Like year after year, you were within a small amount of that. And so... I just, I do think that people need to understand that without real cost savings and expense things, um, it's not a good idea to rely on the past results. Like these analysts will model it out, but there are people who are going to think, oh, well, Cinemark's earnings have been pretty predictable before. Yeah, but that's because this never happens. You don't have a 10% decline. Um, what you're saying is that it's, you know, the, the number of tickets sold is usually incredibly steady. And so that's why these businesses are so predictable. Um, and it won't be now. Look at what happened during COVID. Now, of course, it's not going to be anywhere near what happened during COVID. It dropped from $1.2 billion to you know, $200 million or something, and then it only slowly, slowly came back. And um, But that's the kind of thing that you have to look at or kind of model out and stuff. Like I said, it easily you could have a, a decline in um, reported earnings that's double the decline in the sales number that you're seeing and stuff. So I don't want people to think that a 10 to 20% drop in box office would cause a 10 to 20% drop in earnings. It would cause a lot more than that. Um, but I know that they all are trying to use this as a time to tighten their belts and whatever things and like improve their, uh, like not, they don't want to decline as much as that would imply. So they want some cuts in terms of costs at the same time that they're going to have this revenue drop. Um, so it could be good coming out of it. You know, it could be like meta, where they had a year of efficiency, right? So this could be the year of efficiency for these companies. Got it. Cool. Well, 
I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us on the Focus Compounding Podcast. Uh, if this is the first time you're joining us, be sure to hit the subscribe button wherever you are listening or watching us. Uh, if you want to learn about our money management services, you can reach out to me at andrewatfocuscompounding.com uh, or go to our website, focuscompounding.com and click that invest with us tab uh, to get more information on that. I want to thank everybody so much for all the support and we will see you in the next podcast. Take care.